Well, we are finally back in our sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, if you're like me, I, I really appreciate the seasoning that these mini-series that interrupt a series like Ephesians brings to the church, brings to us on a Sunday morning. Mini-series like Grace Stories, where there are personal testimonies from people um, in the church. Mini-series like the Two Sunday Missions Week that really got us focused on what God calls us to be and to do in the world, and of course, the special services during Easter season. But even as I appreciate those special services, I, I love getting back to the meat and potatoes of our walking through a book of the Bible week by week. And I say this occasionally um, aimed at newer folks. If you haven't been around for much of this series or if you're new to GRC, I'd encourage you to go to graceredeemer.com or look up Grace Redeemer on a podcasting service. You can find our Sunday messages um, archived by sermon series for the most part. We started this a year ago. And um, I don't say that because... I believe that the pulpit should be the foundation of your spiritual growth. It shouldn't be. Uh, Your personal reading, your meditation on the Word of God, your prayer should be the foundation of your spiritual growth. I I recommend that because as you listen to God speak to you through His Word, perhaps a sermon series hitting uh, passage by passage could be a significant help to you a resource for you in your spiritual growth. So um, consider that idea. The beginning of our passage sums up um, for us what Paul has been saying throughout the letter to the Ephesians. It's a convenient way to get back in. What Paul has been saying is, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're in Christ, as he likes to say, then you have been made new. You're a new creation. God has brought transformation. Light, our text will say, no longer darkness. And what Paul has been doing in chapters 4, 5 through 6 is saying, now, in light of that new truth, live consistently lives that reflect that new identity. We'll see again what he has to say to us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one under the chairs in front of you. You can find it on page 949. Listen carefully. These are God's words. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, speak freshly to us by that same Spirit who inspired Paul to write this letter to beloved friends in Ephesus. Speak by your Holy Spirit. Bring conviction of sin. Bring clarity about who you are and what you've done for us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. First, very simply, light is life. 
start laying the groundwork here. Paul, in verse 9, says, The fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. We'll take them um, one by one, spend most of the time on the first one, goodness. It's a tame word. It's a vanilla kind of idea. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. It reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, good things, wholesome things, th- things that feel right. Uh, it, the first pages of the Bible is God is creating all things. Genesis chapter 1 describes God's satisfaction with a simple statement. We read as uh, sort of a rhythmic indicator of the days as they go by one by one. And God saw that it was good, creating everything from nothing in the limitless power uh, that the creator himself alone has and the simple word that God uses to describe is it was good. This is the fruit of life, uh, light, verse 9, because God is light, John says in the first, his first epistle, chapter 1. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Light, we could say, brightens life. It gladdens the heart. In the realm of art, Thomas Kincaid is a contemporary painter, sold millions of dollars worth of paintings. He's called the painter of light. Well before Kincaid, the Dutch masters, um, Rembrandt and Vermeer, were referred to as the masters of light because light brings this kind of vitality, this, this sense of reality, this power to two-dimensional art on a canvas. If you don't really find art that appealing, uh, I put myself in that camp. Apologies to you art fans. I think this is a universal substitute, standing on the shore, looking out at the immensity of the ocean, watching the waves crash. It's awe-inspiring. But if you take that same scene, and it happens to be a clear morning, and you're there at just the right moment as the sun rises over the horizon, that most unique of lights paints indescribable glory. Light brings life. It's a simple idea. Uh, If that's aesthetic goodness, there's also uh, another kind of goodness. Um, Lots of people suffer from what's called seasonal affective disorder. It's a type of depression that typically starts coming on in the late fall and continues throughout the winter months. And one of the growing um, in popularity treatments for seasonal affective disorder is light therapy. Even though it's artificial light, the the theory is that seasonal affective disorder comes on as our our bodies um, and maybe our our minds, our, 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 our beings, we don't benefit from as much natural light. We're not outside um, in nice weather and the shorter days as December 21st, the uh, equinox approaches, give us less access to light. And so artificial light uh, attempts to mimic the beneficial good effects of light. Darkness, literally speaking, 
can trigger depression. If there's an aesthetic aspect to goodness and, and, um, and light, and if there's a psychological benefit to light, we could say very simply, as a last example, light is life itself. We have a family connection to a large farming operation up in northern Vermont. And in northern Vermont, you can't put corn in the ground until after June 1st, sometimes later if the weather doesn't cooperate. And in northern Vermont, the the frost comes mighty quickly at the end of the summer. And so the question is, how, how can a farmer in that kind of climate far up north succeed in bringing a crop to harvest in such a short growing season? Well, if you've, ever, if you've ever visited northern Vermont around the 4th of July, which is our pattern, you would know intuitively why. Because you'd be sitting out on the back deck wondering what is going on, checking your watch, because at 9.30 at night, you can't have fireworks yet because the sky is still bright. And if that doesn't strike you as odd, you start complaining and grumbling and tossing and turning at 4.30 a.m. when this strange sensation is hitting your skin and penetrating your eyelids, waking you up with the sunrise as early in the sky as 4.30 in the morning. The, the, the simple reality with the complex physics of earth tilting at an axis and the sun's angles and the northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, all that combines to simply result in more light in the north means Plants grow crazy fast in June and July. A farmer in northern Vermont can get uh, the corn crop from seed to harvest in two to four weeks less than the same farmer in the southern part of the U.S. Light is life. Laying some simple things down as groundwork to start. That, That moves us a little bit more deeply into what Paul's going on. Secondly, with this idea, light exposure. So back to verse 9. Uh, live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. We'll focus on those last two. Righteousness, justice, rightness, things as they're supposed to be, things that feel right. And light shows what's true. We'll, We'll call that reality clarity. We're given eyes to see what is actually the case, not under the deceiving power of sin. That's directly connected with what Paul says in in verse 11, has nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, now he's, he's not talking about sneaking up on people, trying to catch them in sin, aha, as if we were above such temptation, um, as, as if we were immune to that kind of influence of sin on our hearts. Sadly, that's the world's impression of the Christian church, wagging our self-righteous fingers at other people's mistakes while feeling pretty good about our relative sense of goodness, obedience. Well, if that's not the case, what does Paul have in mind? If the fruit of the light consists of righteousness what is supposed to be, according to God's perfect and wise created design, then exposing darkness is motivated by a desire to help others see what is so very wrong with the world and with humanity and how God has made possible in Christ 
a recovery of goodness. Bottom line is, is exposing darkness has everything to do with helping people see in loving fashion, but with the truth as a foundation. How Genesis 1, God created all things good. Genesis 3, sin enters the world. It corrupts. It begins to decay. It disrupts this fellowship relationship between God and his creation. And yet, at a certain point in time, God the Son enters in. God has now made it possible for a restoration of goodness. Light is dispelling darkness. And biblical shalom is being worked out. You might be familiar with the idea of shalom as a greeting of peace. It's all throughout Scripture. But it goes beyond peace to include a sense of wholeness and integrity about um, our beings. It, it, it describes the flourishing of body, mind, and soul according to the perfect purposes of God. And that means sin is not to be defined as the breaking of some arbitrary rules. Sin is fundamentally to be defined as the breakdown of the world God created and declared to be good, which, of course, leads to the breaking of his will, the rebellion against what he would call us uh, to in obedience. In exposing the darkness, light shows what is true in addition, reality, clarity. When you, verse 10, find out what pleases the Lord... When you're in communion with him, when, when his heart is increasingly reflected in your heart, you cannot continue to turn a blind eye to society-level evils. You need to do something, say something, act, intervene. Nor, when you find out what pleases the Lord, can, can you simply continue to be silent when a classmate is getting picked on every day at recess or when a growth group member habitually drops those passive-aggressive little grenades every time you get together. You can't stay silent. Nor can you when a friend's marriage is crumbling before your very eyes and you know him or her well enough to realize the causes of what's going on, not just apathy, but sinful fantasy, outright rejection of the vows because the selfish heart wants what it wants. You can't stay silent when you continue to find out what pleases the Lord and receive this calling that light exposes the darkness. It shows it for what it is, a, an embrace, if you will, of the decay of what was good, rather than a desperate embrace of what God has provided as the antidote, as the recovery of goodness, which can only be found through the one who said, I am the light of the world. Verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. It doesn't mean letting death and darkness grow and fester because we're not supposed to touch it. It's messy. Uh, I, you know, uh, I shouldn't approach it with a 10-foot pole. That's not what Paul is saying here at all. This phrase, have nothing to do with, warns against a close association with, a partnership with, not just being around darkness. 
And he's already said up in verse 7, therefore, do not be partners with them. And so we should read verse 11 as sort of a, an echo of what he's already said. Have nothing to do with. Doesn't mean don't even uh, come close and minister the gospel to it. Back in 2006, I preached a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we titled it In, But Not Of. In the world, but not of it. Sharing in our presence in the created order with all of humanity in, but not characterized by what the world in its values stands for. In, but not of. This is how Jesus prayed for his disciples the last night of his life. He says this to the Father about his disciples. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world. And then he adds this a little bit later. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. In but not of. So easy to fall off on one side or the other into um, unhealthy imbalance. Either being so disgusted with or fearful of, of darkness or, or self-righteously thinking that that's so beneath you, why would you even come close? And that leads to a, a, a wrong-headed conviction that the best thing we can do is sort of isolate ourselves, build this nice little perfect Christian community. Some people will literally put up walls in a compound. That's become a bad word when it comes to religion, right? And inside the walls of the compound, the world doesn't taint us because we're above that. And we're going to cultivate this sort of idyllic society that that's a wrong-headed falling off the balance point into the Christian ghetto. But it's also easy, on the other hand, to deceive ourselves into thinking that we can play with the darkness, hang out with the darkness, dabble in it because we're just curious and, and don't worry, we're Christians, we have the Holy Spirit, we know our limits. It's so easy to deceive ourselves with that thinking and what ends up happening inevitably because darkness has this black hole vacuum kind of gravitational pull. If you taste it, you'll want more and it will enslave you by making false promises. What ends up happening almost inevitably when we don't treat darkness as it is, when we don't have reality clarity, truth as the fruit of the light, we will, take, we, we will be people who take the name of Christ upon ourselves by calling ourselves Christian, and yet we won't look like Christ very much at all. The world won't be able to tell anything different about us. With the first falling off in imbalance, you get a Christian subculture out of the world, because we're carving out our own little existence here, and certainly not of it. And on the other side, um, you get in the world and of the world, characterized by what the world represents. Neither has anything to do with living as children of the light. On one hand, we'd want to sound like a bunch of fundamentalists throwing Bible grenades at sinners who need to repent, implication being we don't need that, which we always do. On the other hand, neither can we deny the reality that people apart from Christ are lost in darkness, are hurtling towards eternal death and pretending that they'll be okay 
It is biblical malpractice to assume that, to deny the reality clarity that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings to us. They are dying, and they will die forever. It's biblical malpractice. Just like it would be medical malpractice for you to walk into the doctor's office, for that doctor to diagnose something very serious in you, and then tell you to go home. Hopefully it will resolve itself in a few weeks. Maybe there's a social example. When the people of Puerto Rico went without power after Hurricane Maria, the, the, the social fellow human uh, malpractice, I'm not saying we all thought this, I'm not saying the government thought this uh, throughout all of its branches, but the temptation was to figure out, figure, give them a few weeks, they'll be okay. When the reality was, no, they needed water and food sent down that day. They needed generators and medicine sent down as soon as possible. They needed an army of guys in bucket trucks to write poles and hang wires on those poles so that eventually light could return to the island and flourishing could resume. Instead of a Christian subculture, the Bible calls us to a biblical counterculture to, yes, live in the world alongside those who are still in darkness, but as those who have been transformed into the light of Christ and now called to shine that light into darkness with love and concern. And shining light into darkness, yes, involves opening our mouths and speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, not merely trying to be good enough that people will detect the difference. Because, folks, Our our so-called goodness can never be good enough, number one. And good people have never succeeded in transforming anything. Truly transforming. Only Jesus as the true source of light and life can expose darkness and transform it into light. When we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether that's from pulpit proclamation or through individual evangelism, There is no faithful shining of Christ's light without exposing sin. Getting back to the heart of verse 11. Can I share with you a simple biblical litmus test for any preaching, my own included? Pastors on TV included? Your your favorite megachurch podcasting sermon included? If on a regular basis, and, and actually, if, if in, an, in an individual sermon, should be a, red, a yellow flag right away, if in an individual sermon there is no mention of sin, and there is not a calling to some form of repentance, which is a turning away from sin, despite any nice thoughts that will make you feel good and uh, leave you thinking higher of yourself than when be- before you listen to this sermon, despite such nice thoughts about Jesus, if there is no mention of sin and a calling to turn away from it, that half a gospel is no gospel at all. Paul would say, as he did in Galatians chapter 1, let them be accursed if they're preaching half the gospel because it is not half the benefit. It will end up communicating it's okay to stay in the darkness. Nice Christian concepts cannot transform you into a child of the light. Only the spilled blood of Jesus in payment for your sin, in payment for the darkness of your heart, 
Only the way of the cross leads to the newness of light and life. Author and Pastor John Stott talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in one writing and describes the Holy Spirit as the one who, before he is the comforter, is the disturber. How true. Last thought, um, a couple of ideas as to how we live as children of the light. I'll offer a negative thought and a positive thought. The negative thought is this, uh, summed by this at least, summarized. Watch yourself. Watch yourself. Right before our passage, verse 7 says, Therefore do not be partners with them, those who live in darkness apart from the life of Christ. Do not be partners with them. And right after our passage, verse 15 says, Be careful then, very careful then, how you live, because the days are evil. And in the middle of our passage, verse 12, it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Can I simply ask these rhetorical questions? It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Do you find yourself drawn to salacious gossip columns about the rich and the famous? Just want to know what's going on. Do you regularly watch shows that glorify sin? Do you um, find yourself obsessed with tracking Insta twit chats of Hollywood stars and whatever figures are in the news every day with millions of followers, what they're wearing, who they're with, what they're saying? So much of that pattern falls into what Paul is expressly describing as the fruitless deeds of darkness. What good can it give birth to? What crop of righteousness, harvest of righteousness, can it lead to? And so often the answer is nothing. Nothing. Fruitlessness. Playing with or satisfying your curiosity about the darkness is a foolish practice for children of light. Have nothing to do with it, Paul says. Don't be partners with it. Don't be associated with it. For you were once darkness, but now you are children of light. This is who you are. Preach that to yourself. That leads us to the, the positive example of living as children of light. Many of you were here with us uh, on Good Friday. And in the afternoon during that special service, what we do as we read scripture about the passion and death of Jesus is we gradually turn down the lights. And we one by one snuff out the candles until at the very end of the service to signify the, the, the reality that death did come upon our Savior, the King, we leave the sanctuary in utter blackness. That's only possible because several staff members throughout the week worked really hard in cutting out cardboard pieces and taping them inside those window cutouts because they understand, we all understand, that light naturally leaks through every crack and crevice let alone a glass, transparent window. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus very simply says this to his disciples. You are the light of the world. And then he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What's he saying? Naturally leak the light of Jesus. 
naturally let it overflow. Every opportunity it gets through every crack and crevice, let alone wide open opportunities like a window. This is what light does. And that's what the last two verses of our passage are pointing to. Shining the light of Christ into the darkness of other people's lives, telling them about Jesus, making it possible for there to be this God supernatural miracle of transforming one who was in darkness, all these people Paul's writing to, this is what they experienced, into now children of light. God chooses to use us as instruments in the salvation of the lost. I use this quote during Advent. J.B. Phillips wrote a paraphrase of the Bible, and his paraphrase on verse 13, I think, uh, is very helpful to help us understand a difficult verse. This is what he writes. It is even possible, after all, it happened to you, for the light to turn the thing it shines upon into light itself. If you're a follower of Christ, this is one of the greatest privileges God has given to you to leak, overflow, reflect the light that has as its source, just like the moon, the ultimate source, the sun, S-U-N. Our our source is even greater, the sun, S-O-N. We reflect the light who is Jesus in the privilege of sharing about Christ in evangelism, in gospel proclamation. Verse 14 This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Last thought. 2015, in an article in The Atlantic, Graham Wood wrote this, quote, non-Muslims cannot tell Muslims how to practice their religion properly, but Muslims have long since begun this debate within their own ranks. Quote, you have to have standards, Anjum Chaudhary told me. Somebody could claim to be a Muslim, but if he believes in homosexuality or drinking alcohol, then he is not a Muslim. There is no such thing as a non-practicing vegetarian. <laughs> I find that funny myself. Uh, you can't call yourself a vegetarian and eat chicken wings, let alone soup dumplings, if that is a temptation for you. There's a consistency with that idea. All the more so... You can't call yourself a Christian if you're a non-light-shining being. It's what light does. It's what a child of the light instinctively, naturally overflows with. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are light in the Lord. Here's what Paul's telling you, very simply. Live in light of this transformed identity. If you don't know this Jesus, if light and life and and Goodness and righteousness and truth seem like foreign ideas. We've said it quite plainly in word and prayer and song this morning. Jesus is your hope. Come to him. Trust in him. Give your life over to him, and he will make you new. Let's pray. Lord, Forgive us because so easily, like clouds, we block the sun. We do it with our sinful choices. We do it with our chasing after lesser things. We do it when we play with darkness and light will not reflect off of us as your children. Holy Spirit, 
bring us conviction of sin. Holy Spirit, give us reality clarity to see truth as you have laid it out for our flourishing, for our shalom, for our what is so right and good as it's supposed to be according to your perfect mind and heart. Lord, we praise you this day in the name of Jesus. Amen.